Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Podcast. Well, welcome to you. Thanks for joining me. I am about to tell a story. And while you listen to this story, I want you to think of two things in addition to the story. I want you to think of who you can send this to, who will be stirred by the story, who will be changed by the story, who will be challenged by the story. And I also want you to think about how you can get this story in front of children, your own, perhaps your grandchildren, other children, because this story needs to be passed to the next generation. And the story I want to tell is the story of the first Thanksgiving. So we have to roll back in history to the early 1600s. And there's a congregation in the north of England in a place called Scrooby. Scrooby, England. And this congregation is a bunch of Protestant Christians, about 300 people. And they are being persecuted by the King of England, King Henry I. I'm sorry, King James I. And they're being persecuted because they don't buy into the state church. They are Protestants. They are people who are attempting to be biblical, and they don't like the state church. So what happens is they are so persecuted in England that they decide as a congregation to go to Holland There's a great deal of freedom in Holland, not just religious freedom, but every other kind of freedom, which means there's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of things that will offend them when they get there. But nevertheless, the majority of this congregation, not quite all the 300, but the majority of this congregation goes to Holland to a place called Leiden in 1608. And they live there in exile as a people free to worship God, free to read the scriptures, free to believe the doctrines they want to believe. But it's very, very difficult for them. In England, they had been shopkeepers and postmasters and they had worked certain trades. But now that they're in Holland, they're having to work in the shipyards. They're having to work uh, in, in the large dairy farms of that part of Europe. And it's very difficult for them. The older ones start dying early. Uh, People are bent over. People are, uh, their health is challenged because of the work they're having to do. And because of the libertine society, because of the freedom to do everything, not just worship freely, but do everything else freely, uh, the children are starting to drift away. The teenagers are starting to drift away. They're losing the next generation. So they're concerned and they pray a great deal. So they're there for 12 years. Can you imagine 12 years living in exile in a land not their own? And while they're there and while they pray and while they seek God, they begin to have something arise in their hearts. They begin to be burdened by the fact that there are people in what's now known as the new world, what, what is the Western hemisphere. But there are a people who don't know Jesus, who don't know who he is. They pray and they pray and the more they pray and pray about all of their affairs. But the more they pray, the more they become burdened about these natives in the new world. And we have their journals and we know what they were thinking. They said they wanted to be a stepping stones of the light of Christ in the new world. 
They said they wanted to take the gospel of the King of Peace to these natives. The natives could not come to Europe to learn about Jesus. And so they began to pray more and more that Europeans who are serious Christians will go to the new world and take the gospel there. Well, in time, they begin to realize something that really is shocking to them. And that is that they are called by God to go to the new world. They're called by God to go to the new world. So they pray about this intensely. They start to make plans. They can't believe that, it, that they're actually going to be the ones to go. There are a number of them in their congregation who just are infirm or, or un- incapable of going, too old, too young, too infirm. And so their pastor, a man named John Robinson, who will not sail with them to the new world, but stay with those who are left behind in Holland, in 1620 prays over them, commissions them to go, and they go back to England to a port city called Portsmouth, and they prepare to get on two ships. One's called the Speedwell, and the other is called the Mayflower. So this is maybe 200 people maximum. They're on these two ships. These are old ships that they have, they have rented to make the voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World. Well, they have many business dealings. They have people who are investing and, and funding their trip, and it takes a long time. And, and so unfortunately, in the year 1620, they end up leaving much later in the year than they should have. And so finally, finally, they set off late in 1620. Well, they barely get off the coast of England and the Speedwell starts to take on water. It starts to leak. It starts to prove that it's unseaworthy. So they go back to Portsmouth. They leave the Speedwell there. Some people see this as a sign that God is not with them. So they decide not to go to the new world. Others get on the Mayflower. Now, the Mayflower, I need to tell you, is only the size of a volleyball court. It's very small. And they're going to cram now these people we call the pilgrims. They're going to cram 104 people onto the Mayflower, which is no larger than a volleyball court, modern volleyball court. But they do it. In addition to those 104 pilgrims, there are other people. There are other people who aren't part of their company who are traveling. And then there are 40 sailors. Well, It's a voyage that really should not have been successful. They've left late in the year. It's very cold. There are horrible storms in the North Atlantic. And they're going to sail across the North Atlantic for 66 days. Think about that. Two months and six days, they're going to sail across the North Atlantic. And by the way, the United States Navy tells us that that time of year, if you fall into the water... You will die after just three minutes because the water is so cold. You'll die of a thing called hyperthermia. In other words, you'll you'll basically chill to death in the water. So they sail, they set sail, the Mayflower leaks, the captain tells the people to stay in the lower decks and not come above deck. So there they are in little crammed decks down below, each family with a sheet or a blanket hung up to have a little privacy. People are throwing up. People are sick. 
the, the the things they use for toilets are overflowing onto the decks because, of course, the the ship is spinning. Picture picture a ship with its mast sticking up above it, and it's leaning one way into the waves. Then it leans the other way into the waves. People are sick. People are ill. People are screaming. It's horrible. They don't have a lot of food. At one point, the sea is so violent on this voyage, it actually causes the main beam to break. The main beam is a great big uh, stretch of wood that basically goes from the front to the back of the ship, and it cracks. But fortunately, they brought a thing called a jack screw with them. This is something they use to raise the roofs on houses that they're going to build and so on. And so they stick that jack screw underneath this broken beam and screw it up upwards and press it back into shape. Think about that. The ship might have sunk, but fortunately, in the providence of God, they had a jack jack screw that they could press the main beam back into place. Well, there's kind of a humorous thing that happens. The sailors, of course, think these these Christian pilgrims are crazy. And one of them, in fact, a number of them, continue to call them psalm-singing puke stockings, <laughs> which is a funny insult to us. But that's that really tells us the two things these 104 pilgrims did. They they were psalm singing puke stockings. They either were throwing up or they were singing psalms. And these sailors who weren't Christians and weren't religious looked at them and just thought they were nuts. But they at least admired the fact and recognized the fact that they were singing the psalms. By the way, the sailor who most insulted them and most called them psalm singing puke stockings died on the voyage. And so uh, there's, there's, this is something that's been repeated down through history. Well, it's a miserable voyage. By the way, I should tell you that of the 104 who are sailing across on the Mayflower, about 30-some are children. And one woman is actually pregnant. Imagine getting on that voyage pregnant with a child in your body. Well, finally they come to the New World. Finally they come to uh, what we now know as Massachusetts along the area called Cape Cod. They had intended to sail to what we now know as Virginia, but they were blown off course by the storms. So they're now up around Cape Cod. They're now up around Massachusetts. Parents, you might just pull out a map and, and help the young understand where that is because it's a perfect harbor for them. But they look around for quite some time and don't finally make permanent landfall. In other words, they don't finally get off the ship and uh, begin to live on the land until December 21st. Can you imagine? It's right before our Christmas. I mean, it's unbelievably cold in New England, and that winter was particularly bad. And there's a beautiful quote from a man named William Bradford who said, what, what was going to sustain them now but the Spirit of God? There were no inns. There were no family members. There were no stores. There were no homes. There were no warm fires. They were going to have to build every home that they were going to live in. Uh, they were going to have to plant everything they were going to eat. And so they, they were only going to be sustained by the Spirit of God. And that's how they thought. Well, a horrible time results. But there's a kind of an interesting and almost funny thing that happens first. They're building their houses. It's very cold. They're hurrying up and building their, their, their log cabins. They're, they're trying to plant things. And they notice that there are some natives, people we would call now Indians or, for, or first people, um, Native Americans, uh, looking at them from the edges of the trees. And they're aware of them. And they, it actually slows down their progress building things because they have to have some on guard with rifles, uh, with their muskets. 
and they're watching to make sure that these people don't attack them. But it actually removes some of the men that could be working on the houses because they have to be keeping watch with their, with their weapons. Well, finally, one day, a great big tall Indian by the name of Samoset strides out of the woods and says to the person he thinks is in charge, welcome, do you have some beer? Now, you're going to think I'm making this up, but this is exactly true. This man, Samoset, had met English sea captains who had been exploring that area, had befriended them, had gotten on their ships, and actually had already been to England himself. He had learned English. He had come back. His tribe had been wiped out by disease. And so he was there with his friend Squanto, and they really were without a tribe. They were looking for people to live with. They were with a band of Indians, but but it wasn't really... Uh, their tribe. They were, they were kind of adopted by some neighboring Indian tribes that just took them in because they were without a people. So this was a real divine moment. Not only is there a little bit of humor here that he strides out and speaks English. Imagine sailing uh, you know, about a third way around the world, going to a land where, as far as you know, nobody's been uh, from, from your homeland. And the first person you meet speaks English, the same language you speak. So Samoset and Squanto befriend the pilgrims and begin to teach them how to plant in the, in the unique way that's beneficial in that part of the world, the way the Indians did it, and also how to harvest the sea. And boy, if they hadn't done that, I'm sure the pilgrims would have been completely wiped out. Even with their help, even with their friendship, even with the Indians, the Native Americans or the natives of that land, whatever terms you want to use, helping them and bringing them food and showing them how to harvest the sea and plant things, they still entered into what was called the starving time. And this was a time when there was very little food. In fact, there was just a little bit of water and five kernels of corn every day. That's how, that's how meager their, their provisions were, that they got down to a point where each person only had about five kernels of corn a day and a little bit of brackish water. Well, almost half of them died. They died of sickness. They died of disease. They didn't die of starvation, but they died of, of sicknesses that were complicated by their bad nutrition in this cold wilderness in this new world. Well, the spring came and they planted the way the natives taught them. And by the fall, they had a great harvest. And you can imagine how grateful they were. Every family had had someone die during the starving time. Every family. And there were only 50 of them left from the 104 who had sailed over. So half of them died. Well, by the fall of 1621, the year after they arrived, they had an abundance of food. And their governor, as they called him, the man who was in charge, said, let's have a feast. Let's celebrate God's goodness because we have an abundance of food for the first time. And so they decided to have a feast. And they decided also to invite their native friends. Well, of course, there's only 50 of the pilgrims and they've grown enough food to have an abundance for a while. But 90 natives showed up, 90 Indians showed up and 
fortunately, the Indians went out at the command of their chief and killed about five or six deer and brought other food from the supplies of the natives. And so by in order to feed, it would have been a real disaster if the pilgrims had had to feed the natives uh, out of their own stores. They wouldn't have had much food at all for the cold winter that was going to come. But there was plenty of food. The first Thanksgiving is kind of fun to think about. It lasted, first of all, for three days. There were lots of shooting events and sports and wrestling. Uh, at one point, uh, even even a food fight broke out. <laughs> People throwing apples at each other and having fun. I'm not recommending that necessarily for your Thanksgiving feast, but nevertheless, uh, that's what happened at the first Thanksgiving. They prayed, they thanked God, they ate, and they learned that the, the pilgrims learned new sorts of food. They learned about pies. They learned something from the natives that we now call popcorn. That was new to them, but the natives had been popping corn for quite some time, and etc. They would have had a lot of seafood. They would have had some kind of fowl. We're not completely sure it was turkey, but they would have had some kind of fowl. And so it was a glorious time. Now, that's the story, the backstory of the first Thanksgiving. And what I want to tell you is that for many, many years afterwards in New England, families, when they had prepared the Thanksgiving feast and the table was groaning with food, they would put just five kernels of corn on each plate around the table, everyone's plate. And before they prayed and before they dove into the food, the, the abundant feast that was there on the table, probably very much like at your house, they would contemplate what it was like during the starving time and how the pilgrims had sacrificed and how they had died and how they had so little food, so little provisions that they had just five kernels of corn and a little bit of dirty water. And people in New England would remember the starving time and remember the purposes of the pilgrims and remember the great cause that they had committed themselves to. Now, when I mention this cause, I can tell you exactly what their cause was because when they came to the New World, before they had really disembarked, before they had offloaded onto the land, as I said before, on December 21st, they realized that they were far from Virginia, which is what their charter was for. And so they had to have a new governing document. And so they crafted something on shipboard in 1620 called the Mayflower Compact. And in that compact, they said a number of things about their governance and practical matters. But they also said, we sailed, here's the quote, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. We sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. That's why the pilgrims sailed. They wanted to bring the gospel to the new world. They wanted to reach the natives. They wanted to be a stepping stone of the light of Christ in the new land. They sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. So all those years that people in New England put five kernels of corn on each plate and remembered the starving time and, and thanked God for their, their pilgrim forebears and recommitted themselves to the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, recommitted themselves to the spread of the gospel. It was a powerful remembrance every Thanksgiving. Well, 
the pilgrims are under a lot of attack these days. You'll see a lot of articles online. You'll see a lot of scholars writing about how the Thanksgiving story isn't true. And, and there's, there was even a, a war that came about many, many decades later after all the people who sailed on the Mayflower were dead. Um, that was a war between whites and natives. And people say, well, the whites came and they stole their land and there was war between them. But, you know, that's, that's not really true until much, much later. In those first years, the years I'm describing, 1620, 1621, even 1623, and for years afterwards, the pilgrims from Europe and the natives were friends, and they worked together, and they taught each other, and they survived together. Well, I want you this Thanksgiving to have a glorious time. I want you to eat and enjoy family and watch football and all the things we do in modern American Thanksgivings. But I'd like for you to add this story that I've just told you. Because this is true. You can read this story in uh, a book called Of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, who was one of the governors, or a book called Mort's Relation, M-O-U-R-T apostrophe S, Relation. These are the two original sources from the pilgrims themselves. You can get these on Amazon. And they'll tell you the story that I've just told you. These are original documents. So I think that the pilgrims are under attack a lot because people don't want to really believe that there was a Christian underpinning to American history, that some of our founders were devoted Christians and came for Christian purposes and and did what they did for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. But it's exactly true. Do a simple Google search of the Mayflower Compact and you'll read their words from 1620. I think Thanksgiving is important. I think it's important because it's the only time that we really talk about God and American history, that we really express our gratitude for what's happened, that we really remember our forebears. Yeah, we have Fourth of July, but that's really about celebrating the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the founding generation, the American Revolution. But a century and a half or more before the American Revolution, there were the early settlers, and among those were the pilgrims. And they were godly, and they were sacrificing. And they gave their lives to bring the gospel to the new world and lay a foundation in this country that we need to remember. So happy Thanksgiving to you. Enjoy family. Enjoy food. Enjoy the football games. It's perfectly fine. All of it's great. But also remember the heritage that is remembered on that day. Remember that first Thanksgiving. And remember the purposes to which the pilgrims were devoted. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And may you too live for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on Fox and CNN. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and Lincoln's Battle with God. Learn more at stephenmansfield.tv.